0: Welcome to Career
1: Day on the MarTech Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by CallRail. Did you know that there are close to 100 billion mobile phone calls to businesses each year? That's billion with a B. And according to industry analysts, that figure is expected to double by 2020. Your business phone is one of the most powerful conversion tools in your arsenal. So what are you doing to optimize how you use the phone as a marketing channel? CallRail provides intuitive software that enables smart marketers to know what makes their phone ring. Their self-service analytics platform tracks both offline and online marketing campaigns to provide campaign attribution and performance insights. Their call scoring system uses machine learning to analyze every call your business takes to help you understand where they're coming from and which are the good leads. Trusted by more than 100,000 brands and agencies across the world, the CallRail platform will help your business with everything from call attribution, routing, and conversion rate optimization. For most businesses, lead acquisition happens online and customer acquisition happens over the phone. If you're ready to optimize how you use your business phone, visit callrail.com martech to see how CallRail can be the difference in your marketing and sales efforts. CallRail, call tracking for data-driven marketers. Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and the lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on her career. Joining us for Career Day is Michelle Robbins, who is a marketing technologist and software engineer. Michelle is in the midst of a very luxurious sounding educational sabbatical. But prior to taking some time to recharge her jets and learn some new skills, Michelle's held a variety of roles spanning from working at Disney as a marketing manager, running a web development consulting firm, and most recently, she was the SVP of content and technology at Third Door Media, which owns the marketing-focused properties that include Marketing Land, Search Engine Land, MarTech Today, and of course, the MarTech Conference. So here's our conversation with marketing technology enthusiast, Michelle Robbins. Michelle, welcome to the MarTech Podcast.
2: Thanks so much. I'm happy to join.
1: It's exciting to have you here on Career Day, and you're one of the first people that we've talked to for this segment that is taking some time to develop their career outside of working. So before we get into your career path, what is it like to be on sabbatical, and how jealous should I be?
2: (laughs) I'm not going to lie, it's pretty nice. It's interesting having unstructured time, if you will. It's been a very long time since I've had that, but it's enabled me to really focus in on my path and the next steps that I want to get to in my career. And I feel really lucky that I'm able to do that.
1: I don't know if I've said this yet, but I hopefully have alluded to it. I'm jealous. I would love the time off and spending time learning what you're doing while I do learn a lot from producing the MarTech podcast and I enjoy what I do. Taking a personal break to focus on yourself and develop your career sounds like an amazing opportunity. So let's talk about, now that we've talked about what you're doing a little bit, where it all started in your career, tell us a little bit about how you got into marketing.
2: Well, I first got into marketing actually straight out of college. I was very involved in my college radio station, KUCI. So once I graduated from college, I joined Disney. They had a commercial record label called Hollywood Records. So I joined there to work in the alternative promotion, securing airplay for their artists. Mm-hmm. So the marketing and promotions department typically are segmented to focus on the type of radio station. So you've got rock stations, you've got classical stations, and then you have alternative stations. So nationally, Those stations are like K-Rock here in L.A. Um, Live
1: 105, I think, is the one here in the Bay Area. Yes,
2: I worked with Live 105, worked with all of those types of stations across the country. And you are essentially marketing your artists to the programmers at those stations to get airplay.
1: Okay. So this is essentially kind of pre the technology boom. You're working in the music industry and the marketing experience that you're getting is trying to secure placement for artists on specific radio stations that are a good match. So you're learning a little bit about targeting and impressions and a little bit also probably as sales and field marketing as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. So I had a field staff that worked in the local markets, specifically um, representing all of the artists. Then I also had working with me people that would work to secure placements and in store airplay. So, back when there were record stores and you went into a record store and you heard certain artists playing, that was largely at the behest of the record companies working with those retailers to secure not only in store placement and sales, but promotion within the stores. And we worked with smaller independent stores.
1: Interesting. So, you started off in the music business, but eventually transitioned into technology. How did that happen? And then this is, again, looks like the relatively in kind of the middle of the 90s, as the internet and software industries were starting to boom, how'd you make the transition from the music industry as a marketer into technology?
2: I had a couple of friends that had also gone to UCI and they had a startup in Orange County and the startup was focused half on software development and web server utilities. And then the other half was honestly one of the first agencies in Orange County to start working with clients on developing web presences and marketing on the web.
1: So what was your role and set of responsibilities there?
2: When I first joined, I was sort of an all-hands kind of person.
1: It's a startup.
2: (laughs) It's a startup. Everyone's an all-hands person. And then ultimately, I led sales and marketing for the software side.
1: Okay. So you basically had some sales and marketing experience. You were figuring out how to do some promotions and build a network promoting musicians to get their content to be played. And you took the skills that you had accumulated from that first stop in your career, more of a traditional marketing background and started applying those in a technology company. Absolutely. Tell me about what the experience was like moving into technology at that time.
2: Well, for me, it was brand new because my background was not in technology at all. And in fact, if you were talking to me 25 years ago and telling me, you know, in 25 years, this is what you're going to be doing, I would have laughed at you because I never would have expected to take to technology as naturally as I did. And I worked with some great people who were great mentors.
1: The interesting thing to me is you're working in the technology sector and it's the early 90s. And one of the things that we've talked about a few times and pretty much with every woman who comes on the podcast is how, you know, it hasn't always been an easy road being a woman in technology. And I'm sure at that time, maybe you had some eyebrows raised based on your gender and how you got in that field. Did you feel that at the time or were you just one of the people working and because the industry was still being developed, didn't feel like there was a gender bias at all?
2: I didn't feel a gender bias within the company that I worked for. They were fantastic and ended up being the most influential people in my career path. But the software side, we would demo in the Microsoft Pavilion at Internet World. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because I'd be demoing our software for people. I think it was the first year we did this and about halfway through the first day, a couple of the engineers came over to me and they're like, people are just coming over here to talk to you, aren't they? They're not interested in these products. I'm like, yep, welcome to the world of being a woman in tech.
1: I hope I don't get fired for this, but there is the Booth Babe strategy. Right. And the good news is it's my podcast, so I don't think I can get fired. (laughs) But it is reality that companies hire attractive women at events because most of the people that are going to the event that they're trying to sell to are men and men are attracted to pretty women. So I get how that can be something that is used to your advantage, but... I'm stepping on the third rail here. I'm just going to shut up and ask you more about your career. Well,
2: I should add that I was wearing a company polo shirt. Remember how back in the 90s, everybody had company polos with their logo on them? I was wearing that in khakis Uh and probably a ponytail or something. So I wouldn't say that the company was utilizing me as a booth babe kind of strategy. I literally was just a woman in the building. And what was remarkable to me, because I wasn't used to being kind of the odd man out, if you will, in that scenario. And it was when we would go to tech conferences and tech things, and I would go to the restroom and there'd be nobody in the restroom. It looked like it hadn't been seen in years. That's when I realized, wow, there aren't women in tech. It was interesting for me to learn as well, because I never thought that there wouldn't be women in tech. That was never part of my experience. I knew lots of scientists and women who were very technical. So it was a bit of a shock to me. It was more pronounced, actually, when I left doing sales and marketing and started pursuing programming and engineering. That's when I started being literally treated like a zoo animal.
1: Great transition to get us away from talking about the Booth Babe strategy. Thank you for your help. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about how you made the transition from being a marketer working in a software company to actually doing the engineering. And obviously, I want to hear about why you felt like you were being treated like a zoo animal.
2: <laughs> so. I really believe you really have to understand and know your product to sell it and market it effectively. And that was very easy for me in music, but in technology, since it was entirely new to me, I didn't have a native understanding of these things. And I really wanted to understand how does the product work and why does it work this way? And how did you decide to add this feature or that feature and those kinds of things? So I asked the team, can you explain to me how this functionally works down to the very most basic level? Because I thought that would help me do a better job of selling it and marketing it. And they were fantastic and said, yeah, great, let's do that. Set aside some time in the conference room, pick a topic, and we'll teach you. And that kind of got the ball rolling for me. And from there led to me going back to UCI to take courses.
1: Okay, so you went back and got more education. You basically understood the basics of technology as it related to your role in sales and marketing, but then you went back to get some education to actually learn the coding component.
2: Yeah, I went back and took a number of programming courses. At that time, primarily focused on Microsoft Tech because that's what the company did. Okay. It was continuing education. I just picked specific programming classes that I know I needed to learn.
1: So you were doing double time. You were going to school and working in sales and marketing. Yes. And then at some point you transitioned to running what's called beta girl web development. You did that for a fair amount of time. Well, I'll let you tell the story, but you end up going out on your own. What happened there?
2: So the software company relocated to the Valley up to San Francisco, and I was not going to relocate
1: with them. It's not a bad place.
2: (laughs) It's not a bad place, but my home has always been LA. So they were relocating up north. And that was just sort of a good time to kind of make a break to where I could pursue doing more web development and things like that, that I had already shifted to doing internally for the company, but doing it on my own. So I ended up continuing to work with the software side, as well as the leader of the online side that was sold to another company in Orange County. They were my first consulting clients and then developing out my consulting business from there, which also then led to me getting into digital marketing and understanding digital marketing, advertising, search marketing, SEO, things like that, as well as developing web applications and shifting from Microsoft technologies over to the LAMP stack.
1: What was the stack?
2: LAMP, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP.
1: Okay. It's interesting to hear you talk about how you got into consulting and who your first client was. From my understanding, it is generally a couple different ways that people start consulting businesses. They have a bad breakup with their previous company and they go out on their own because they don't know what else to do. They make a strategic choice to go be a functional area expert and they bring their existing employer with them as a consultant. Or they basically just take a break, come back and start working on short-term projects because they need an emotional break and take it from there. Sounds like you had a great relationship with the company you were working with. They moved and you sort of continue you to work with them and developed your consulting business from there.
2: Absolutely. Like I said, I really do feel like I've been fortunate to have such terrific mentors and co-workers, and these guys were all really supportive of me doing what I did. And in fact, the person that ran the online company that was sold, and then he moved to London for a while, when he started another startup, which was Third Door Media, he basically said, quit your clients and come work for me again. So that sort of circled back.
1: Interesting. So while you were working for yourself, managing Betagirl web development, you said you were creating applications for people and also learning marketing. Tell me a little bit more about what you were working on and specifically about some of the marketing technologies that you were focused on.
2: So at that point, because again, this was pretty early days in the late 90s, the marketing that I did with the clients was focused on search engine marketing. So SEO, just making sure their sites were set up properly for search engine indexing and showing up in the SERPs. So it was a lot of, at that time, focus on content and keywords and meta tags and kind of the basics, the things that these days everybody already knows and doesn't have to even think about to do properly. So it's was focused on that as well as the early days with advertising on the search engines. I had a couple of clients that I didn't do as much application development for them as I did managing ad campaigns.
1: Interesting. So basically, you're creating the applications or web pages for people. And as part of that, you're doing the SEO optimization. Out of the SEO optimization comes, how do I get more traffic, which is you're working with Google. And at that time, it was primarily AdWords. You mentioned eventually you made the transition to Third Door Media, somebody that you had worked with before. Tell me about what you learned by being an independent consultant and what was the lesson you took away from that stop in your career?
2: Honestly, the most important lesson or the lesson that continued to endure was things are always going to take longer than you think particularly when you're developing an application or building a web presence. And this is where being agile is really important. And this was obviously pre-agile as a tenant that we all aspire to now.
1: Then it was just called being flexible.
2: It was just called being flexible. I mean, the waterfall approach to development was still really the standard at that point. But the more you start working on projects, the more they evolve. Starting out with a wholly complete, finite project. I don't know if anyone's ever done that. I'd love to hear. So I learned that understanding things will change throughout the process and building in time for that so that you're not disappointing clients on timelines. When I initially would be working with clients, I knew exactly, oh, this is going to take this much time. We'll have this by the date. And it took a couple of cycles to learn that I needed to add significantly to that.
1: So eventually you make the transition to Third Door Media. You come back in-house. Sounds like you were recruited by a former peer or mentor. Talk to me about what role you stepped into at Third Door Media.
2: So I was brought in to develop all of the technology that the company would use, front end and back end. So that involved creating all of the websites, setting up and configuring any third-party technologies we would use, developing custom applications that we would use, go on to use, but primarily developing out the technology stack.
1: A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex, ready to take your team from I think to I know So Third Door Media has grown over 12 years of existence. I'm sure it didn't have all of the various websites and properties that it has today. What were some of the properties that you were working on and what did the platform look like back then?
2: So it was Search Engine Land was our first editorial property. And that was originally launched in Movable Type. It was pre-WordPress. And then we also had a Search Marketing Now, which has become Digital Marketing Depot, but they were the same brand. And that was our webinar platform. We've always used On24 for that, but I built out... That blog was just static, hard-coded HTML because it wasn't intended as a publishing property. All of our sites were eventually moved into WordPress, but at the time, that was just built, hand-coded HTML. And then we also had Search Marketing Expo, our event site, which was also hand-coded.
1: So you're basically a technologist at this point working for a marketing company, Mm -hmm. and your role evolved over time as the company evolved. So tell me about your progression through Third Door Media and how you grew with the company.
2: Well, I was in an interesting position because it was a startup when I joined. I was brought in with the first four partners. I was a non-partner, but brought in when they started saying, let's do this, and here's how it's going to look, and here's what we're going to do. And since I had both marketing and technology experience, I always and being in the role that I was in, I worked with all of the brands. So I always worked across the company. I always worked with, you know, with sales, with marketing, with the executive and editorial. In fact, I worked on the editorial team with helping to develop content for the Search Marketing Expo events because I was so seated in the industry, basically. And my knowledge crossed technology and marketing. So I was brought in to assist on a lot of things. It was also always very easy for me to translate. So I could understand marketing language and I could help them understand technology language.
1: Yeah. You spoke marketing from the early days because that was the initial part of your career.
2: Exactly. So... I've always seen that there tends to be some friction between marketing and technology departments. And I never understood that because it was never my experience. But I can see how because working with people in technology is very different from working with people in marketing. And I think being able to speak each other's language and understand and communicate is really critical. And I think I took that for granted for a long time because it was my experience that there was no problem.
1: I have a sneaking suspicion that I know the answer to this, but do you find that the communication gap between marketing and technology teams is growing or getting smaller?
2: I'm going to have to say it depends. I think that marketers are getting a higher level of acumen with respect to technology, but I don't know that technologists are with respect to marketing. And I think that's what causes the gap.
1: That's interesting. The more that I think about the changes in marketing over the last decade, the more that, you know, we've shifted from what I'll call traditional marketing, the mad men style of marketing, which is very creative driven to marketing being more centered around analytics and funnels and conversion data and just the practices of digital marketing which has forced marketers to speak more technology. It's interesting to hear you say that technologists don't necessarily have to speak more marketing, but I do feel like at least marketers have come more center from left. Even if the engineering teams are still speaking the same language, I feel like marketers are hopefully a little bit more capable and understanding of technology. And that's why I think it's probably getting easier to communicate cross-functionally.
2: Yeah, I think so. And with respect to technologists, not going the other way, like there's no impetus for them to really understand marketing and funnels and things like that necessarily. But I think it would be helpful if marketers worked with technologists on understanding those things that they don't natively understand to try and head off at the past that kind of gap. One of the things I always did when working with clients, I would get these RFPs and the RFPs are traditionally drawn up by marketers. So I understand that they use these briefs to sell up the chain, to get budget, but also send it over to the technologist. And there was one that was literally 10 pages of buzzwords, just 10 pages of buzzwords. And I had to send it back with, please tell me what you want this to do. (laughs) (laughs) Because I wasn't able to understand what should this application do based on all of the buzzwordiness. And I think that's where the problems are the most highlighted.
1: Yeah, the artificial intelligence should map to the data science practices that are used <laughs> in our machine learning algorithms, which force our marketing automation services to drive revenue. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Just tell me what you wanted to do. Exactly. And that worked, actually, in working with Third Door and working across the departments because the other thing that's happening, because there are so many technology choices for marketers to make, and often that choice is being left to the marketers. So without understanding how a given piece of technology actually integrates with existing technologies they're using. So I've always found when, you know, someone would come to me and say, Hey, I saw this, can we use it? I would always send it back with what does this do that you can't already do? How do you need to use this? You know, I would have a set of questions that I would ask them back before just saying, yes, we can implement this. Here you go. And everything's great. Because I think that it's incumbent upon the technology department to then also educate and inform the marketers on how to really get the most out of any piece of technology they want.
1: On the bright side, the change in dynamics for marketers needing to understand technology more and how there are so many choices and it's difficult to make the decisions with your technology stack, it's created a vacuum for talking heads to create podcasts discussing marketing and technology and how they overlap. So it's it's not all a loss, if you ask me. (laughs) Maybe I'm being a little self-centered with how I think about this. But tell me a little bit about eventually you changed from focusing on building the technology stack at Third Door Media, the marketing company, to actually being the SVP of content and marketing technology. So at some point you started to grab a little bit more of the landscape for the company and actually got into more of a marketing role? What was that role like?
2: So the marketing technology role itself, honestly, it was just something that I'd always been doing. It just wasn't called that because I did work across all of the brands and help them on strategies in a lot of ways. But what happened was two years ago, one of the founders who ran content for the company announced that he was going to be resigning and retiring. So at that time, the company decided to restructure and reorg And I was brought in to fulfill that role and continue overseeing the technology team as I always had.
1: Okay. So tell me a little bit about the content piece that you picked up in the reshuffling.
2: So part of the reorg involved really focusing on aligning content across the organization and across the business units, instead of keeping them separate and treating the editorial properties as distinct from what our marketing services team was doing and what our event marketing team was doing. Because our audience is one audience. So we just decided to align all of those goals across and take a really strategic look at our content opportunities and the ways that we can use our content across all of these business units. So I was brought in to effectively enact that strategy.
1: I'm not sure I understand. I get that you are a multi-property entity, right? There's multiple different websites or multiple different brands, and you own the technology stack that's underlying. But when you pick up the content piece, are you saying that you're basically building content that applies across all of the different properties, or what was the strategy there?
2: Sure. And it was really more of a refocusing and integrating more tightly the different groups, It wasn't something that we weren't already doing. Obviously, we have a significant amount of content and we're doing a significant amount of marketing with that content, but it was more strategic. So for example, this was before people were really paying attention to GDPR. So part of our content strategy then was I said, okay, we're going to need a GDPR guide so that people can really just understand and get their hands around the fundamentals of what this is and how it's going to impact marketers, especially in the States where people didn't necessarily understand. And then take that guide and then that guide becomes a white paper or an ebook, another asset that the marketing services team can use to do lead gen for either our external clients, as well as our own event marketing team. And then we could also do a webinar surrounding GDPR. In fact, I think that we did one. I think that might've been one we did with Scott Brinker. So it's basically leveraging our content across the different divisions and domains in a more strategic way than we had been before for audience acquisition growth.
1: Interesting. So essentially, the strategy that you implemented was to expand the life cycle of the content that you were producing by repurposing it across multiple different mediums. You're writing blog posts or a guide, and then you're repurposing it to white papers and blah, blah, blah.
2: Absolutely. And then also understanding the data and our audience and the types of content our audience and especially our targeted core audience was interacting with taking those same learnings and insights and applying them to our programming and our events. So it really went across the spectrum.
1: Okay. So basically adding a data lens across what the content that you're creating to make sure that you can repurpose it and make sure that you're promoting the most popular and engaging pieces of content. So eventually you step away from third door media into your educational sabbatical. Talk to me about what's happening in your career now. uh, Where are you focused and what are you doing?
2: It actually started two years ago.
1: God, I'm jealous.
2: Well, I'm not the sabbatical.
1: (laughs) No, okay.
2: But shifting my focus, a couple of years ago, I took a 10-week certificate course out of MIT on big data and social analytics. And I've always been a data nerd. I could research papers all day long. I'm that kind of weird. And I took that course and I took it sort of as a proving ground to see if data science was what I wanted to shift into for my next career. And it was, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time doing that certificate, but it was also at that same time that the announcement came that Danny would be resigning. So the opportunity opened up to take on the content portion at Third Door. So I did. But after a year, I realized I need to decide, is content going to be my path or data science because there was not time for both there was just no room for it so that's why i left and decided to refocus on data science so what i've been doing is i've been taking a programming for data science course that i'm just per near through and i've started looking at various masters programs because my goal is to start a masters program either in the spring or the fall of 2019 in data
1: science so you're giving up on us marketers you're <laughs> using your technology background and you're doubling down on understanding data science
2: But I don't think that's leaving marketing behind. I'm
1: obviously kidding. But, you know, you didn't want to continue down the content development and content marketing path and are more interested in how data interacts with technology or how you can use data to improve technology than focusing specifically on content marketing.
2: And I would argue that content is data.
1: That's a bold statement. Go on.
2: (laughs) So content is data and understanding what content is surfacing, what content is telling and how to change that content in response to what you're learning from the data about it about how people are interacting with it. And a lot of it goes to a lot of the work that's being done around emotional. There's a platform called Persado that is AI driven and you essentially feed it your content and then it tells you the best way forward to market, essentially. I don't know if you're familiar with it or if you've seen it. It's pretty powerful. I've tried to find someone that's used it or is using it and having a tremendous amount of success with it. It's still pretty new, so I'm not sure how many people are. But that's why I would say content is data, because you take content, you analyze it, and it informs changes in content and marketing and sales.
1: Interesting. I don't know if I would necessarily agree that content is data. I think that out of content comes data. Content produces data that tells you how the content performs and can be used to influence your marketing. Saying that content is data makes me think that the underlying way people consume content is by thinking about ones and zeros and cells on a spreadsheet. And there is a difference between someone producing content for Instagram that creates data about their behaviors than that photo actually just being data. I don't know if I 100% agree, but I definitely think they are tightly wound together.
2: I would argue that Google sees content as data.
1: Yeah, I guess.
2: I'm happy to agree to disagree.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. You're probably right and I'm probably wrong, but let's go on to a little bit of a different topic. As you reflect back, you've gone from working in the music industry early in your career as a marketer, you learned technology and were an independent consultant, and then you became an executive at Third Door Media, managing technology and content, and now you're transitioning into becoming a data science expert. And all along the while, you've been working your way up to be a female executive in marketing and technology. As you look back on your career, what advice do you have for the other people that are interested in following your career path and specifically for the younger women who are potentially listening to this podcast?
2: I would say seek out mentors. Don't be afraid to ask questions because it was my asking questions that led me on this path. If I hadn't spoken up and hadn't asked those first questions of how does this work, literally the first conference room meeting we had, they said, what's your topic? And I said, TCPIP, explain that to me. It grew from there. But you have to be curious and you have to ask questions. And mentors could come from within the organization you're at. They could come from external organizations, but find people to help guide you along the path because I do think that's critical.
1: It's one of the common themes for most of the women who have come on this podcast, and I've specifically tried to ask them what their experience is being a woman in marketing and technology, because most of the time they have said, you know, it's really important for us to have mentorship. That's not something we necessarily get. And it's really important for us to have the support of other women in our industry that's really a common theme that is coming up with me of the value of women being a template for other women. Absolutely. I think that there's something that any of the women that are listening to this podcast who are early on in their career, there are great examples like Michelle that you can continue to grow in your career and that there are models and templates for you to follow, even if you have to search a little harder to find them than the average guy would.
2: Yeah. And I absolutely think it's also incumbent upon women to bring other women up the ladder with you. Don't climb that ladder by yourself. So I'm very involved in mentoring other colleagues, people that I work with or have worked with, as well as young women. There's a nonprofit in LA that I work with that I specifically work with, keeping them focused on paths and STEM because I really believe that you can't be what you can't see. So the more women that are in these kinds of roles and in these positions, I do think it's our responsibility to work with the younger women.
1: Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing, serving as a good role model in marketing and technology. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and telling us how you've gone from a marketer to a technologist and on to a data science. So good luck in your ongoing education.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun.
1: It was great to have you on the show. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Michelle Robbins for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Michelle, you can click on the link to her LinkedIn profile in our show notes, uh, or you could send her a tweet at Michelle Robbins, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-R-O-B-B-I-N-S. A special thanks to CallRail for sponsoring this podcast. If you're interested in learning how to optimize your business phone as a marketing channel, click the link in our show notes or go to callrail.com Martech for a trial of their call tracking and lead scoring platform. If you're a subscriber to the Martech podcast, thank you for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you. So we created benjshap.com question where you can ask any marketing questions and we'll answer them live on our show. Of course, you can also reach out via social media. My handle is BenJShap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, pretty much everywhere on the internet. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got some great episodes lined up for you. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed next week. And lastly, if you didn't have time to take notes of this podcast and you want to refer back to some of the things that Michelle said, we have all of our interview summaries on our website, which is martechpod.com. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks to Michelle for joining us. And until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.